Right around two years ago, Marcus Hutchins, better known by his hacker name MalwareTech, was at the Las Vegas airport waiting for a flight to go back home to the UK. He was hungover and coming back from DEF CON, the biggest hacker conference in the world. And that's when the feds came in and arrested him. What's more, at the time, the 23-year-old security researcher was hailed as a hero for stopping the spread of the WannaCry ransomware worm. On this week's Cyber, we talked to Marcy Wheeler, an acclaimed journalist who covers national security. She's covered this case from the beginning and is going to tell us the story of Hutchins and where he is today. So, Marcy, take me back to the beginning. What happened to Marcus Hutchins two years ago after DEF CON? Uh, as he was getting ready to board his plane to go back to the UK, um, the FBI came up to him and said, hey, we need to talk to you and brought him down into an interrogation room um, and critically for the story, interviewed him for 90 minutes and then put him under arrest. Um, And he was in detention for over the weekend until he got a pair of really great lawyers and um, it took two years, and now it's over. Marcus Hutchins, who is he? And why was he? Why is this such a significant story among the InfoSec community? So he's a malware researcher who, in um, May of 2017, when this global malware launched ap- across the globe called WannaCry. It looked at first like an attack just on hospitals in the UK, but it's now becoming clear that this malicious software has run riot around the world. He did what he normally does, which is register the domain that seems to be a command and control for the malware. And unbeknownst to him, that ended up sinkholing the malware. So he stopped the largest malware attack in the world up to that point um, and arguably would have still been the largest um, by just registering a domain and saved the world. From probably some of the most malicious ransomware that's ever been created, really. Based off of an NSA tool. So um, NSA's tools get leaked on online, and the U.S. and U.K. government uh, now attribute it to North Korea, turns it into this global malware that, um, that he, on his day off, ends up shutting down just by registering a domain. And, and say, I mean, for example, in the U.K., the um, the hospitals were being shut down because they couldn't operate their computers. Their computers were being shut down. So it's that kind of impact that entire factories were being shut down because their computers were being basically held ransom. And as I heard it, he was hungover at Las Vegas airport, which I cannot confirm or deny. I have also been hungover after DEFCON. Well, the defense alleged that, yes, he had been partying quite a bit that he had slept virtually not at all. And they also hinted at the fact that he had used some kind of drugs, although they did not officially say what that was in court. So that that actually came to be one of the issues that was litigated over the last two years, is whether or not 
when he was interviewed by the FBI, he knew what he was getting into because he was just wiped from being at DEF CON all week. Two weeks, I think he was there. But why Why did the, the FBI want him? What, what did they want him for? Okay, so they arrested him for Computer Fraud and Abuse Act because that's what you always arrest hackers for. And the charge is really interesting. They arrested him for having written the code that had been sold to an FBI agent or a Homeland Security investigations agent or somebody in the federal government back in 2015 in Wisconsin. So it was malware called Kronos that had been renewed in a couple of iterations and still sort of is used in some attacks. And he had written some of the code for that. This is something that didn't happen yesterday at that point. It was two years old at the time. They would add some charges later, but it was two years old at the time. But he had been at DEF CON the year before. So somebody in Wisconsin buys this piece of malware in 2015. He comes to DEF CON in 2016. They don't arrest him then. He comes to DEF CON in 2017. He's a hero. That's when they decide to arrest him. Is there any connection to that? The government says no. The government says that uh, their explanation for why they didn't arrest him in 2016 but did in 2017 is that somebody that he gave the malware to to pay off a debt in 2014, 2015, basically became a narc. And one of the things he offered up to the government was Marcus, was, was Hutchins. And he had some chat logs with Hutchins showing Hutchins basically admitting that that he had written this malware. The guy that gave him up was not prosecuted. That guy actually did did steal passwords, did rob banks with this stuff. So the guy who committed the actual crime was not arrested. Marcus was. Why is the FBI so intent on, on going after him or why were they so intent on it? So this guy gives the government chat logs involving Hutchins, right? That happens, um, according to them, I think it was late 2016. So their claim is they didn't have this evidence against Hutchins until late 2016. And so the next time he came back in the United States, which happened to be after he had shut down WannaCry, then they decided to arrest him. But the other thing that's going on is it's very clear, both from the court record and from other things that I've been told, not by him, but by other people who are familiar with what the FBI was doing at the time, it's very clear that they wanted to arrest him to turn him into an informant. So even in that first 90-minute interview with the FBI, they were saying, tell us about these other people you know. So basically what they had done, whether it was in late 2016 or in 2017 after they were trying to figure out who had sinkholed WannaCry, they had done this map of who Hutchins knew online. And there's a guy named Vinny who was his co-conspirator, who's the guy who actually sold the malware, who had some ties to, I think it's Ukrainian, uh, you know, a, a kind of network of Ukrainian hackers that a different part of the FBI, not the part of the FBI that arrested Hutchins, not the FBI people who actually interviewed him. A different part of the FBI was investigating those Ukrainians, or I don't know whether the Ukrainians are Russians, but because Hutchins had interacted with some of them online, the FBI, in their infinite wisdom, said, hey, let's arrest the guy who just saved the world and try and turn him into our informant to get at these other hackers. 
So they're trying to flip them. That's they're the whole. Flip- that's the whole yeah. point of this. I mean, that's what the FBI always does. Why they thought it would be a good idea with the guy who just saved the world, I don't know. But I'm not the FBI, so I can't explain their infinite wisdom. But he remain he remains in jail and in custody. Just for the weekend, Motherboard, Vice, reported that he had been arrested. And so the InfoSec community came out for him and said, we're going to raise money. We're going to get you lawyers. We're going to get you taken care of. There were some people who learned that he had been arrested while they were still in Vegas. So they stayed and came back and, you know, kind of rallied around him. And so I think the FBI assumed that he would not get good lawyers. And once he did, that sort of screwed up their plan to flip him. It's been litigated until very recently. Until last Friday, yeah. And this is a two-year process. Right, right. So that he pleads guilty in May. And when he goes to sentencing, that's literally the first time he's in a courtroom with the actual judge presiding over his case. And so when it came to sentencing, the judge was basically like, I have no idea why the government thought it was a good idea to prosecute the guy who just saved the world. He's, you know, it, it took about 90 minutes for him to say that. But, it, you know, ultimately, had Hutchins been able to get to that judge at the beginning, um, had there been a way to go to the judge and say, what do you think about the wisdom of prosecuting the guy who just saved the world on charges that are years old, that the government agrees he's not engaged in criminally anymore? what do you think about the wisdom of that? Then we might have avoided that whole two-year process, but that's not the way the U.S. quote-unquote justice system works. So what does this whole thing say about the FBI and its perspective and relationship towards hackers? Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I mean, it's a larger question about their perspective towards how they solve crimes, because they're always going to want to go for informants, even though... Had they gone to Marcus and said, do you know these Ukrainian hackers? He probably would have answered just as honestly as he did when he was, you know, about to be arrested. But they chose not to do that. They chose to try and coerce him into this relationship that ended up not working. Hutchins then, when he was interviewed and still to this day, says he didn't have the information that the FBI wanted in the first place. But they would have avoided this embarrassment. You know, they went for having the coercion over him rather than just asking. And asking at a time where he was cooperating, you know, not just on on WannaCry, but he was cooperating with the NCSC in the UK, kind of the equivalent in the United States of DHS, in chasing down WannaCry, in, you know, responding to malware. So he was working with law enforcement anyway, which is one of the things that the judge said in sentencing, by the way. Um, so it was just, it's inane that the FBI decided that in the United States, they were going to find a way to try and coerce this guy, but that's what they did. And, and, you know, he didn't, he didn't have the information. They then felt obliged. And this is, I mean, this happens, um, in a lot of kinds of cases They they, they, I think felt obliged to continue with the prosecution, maybe believing that if they did so, if he were facing more coercion, then he would flip. 
And it just, you know, they kept going down the path. There was never a time and never a person who said, this is moronic, turn around, tell him to go home and just stop this process. And, and that's really, that's really unfortunate. I mean, I, and I know, I know uh, I've heard of people within the FBI who were like, this is really stupid, who, who for several reasons, one, because it's stupid and two, because they do need to cooperate with hackers and with researchers. Um, and, and what, what happened to Hutchins was just so inane and it, it created a lot of bad blood with the, the InfoSec community. What does this say about the Computer Fraud and Abuses Act and how it's going to be used going forward? This as a precedent is really dangerous for anybody who's in, in the Eastern District of Wisconsin. Um, and it wasn't just CFAA. They ended up at adding eavesdropping charges, wiretapping charges, basically. And in a number of places around the country, software is not considered a wiretapping device. And Hutchins lawyers argued that and lost. And so now that's a precedent in this district. And again, they argued that selling malware should not get you prosecuted under CFA. They lost on that too. And the government succeeded in getting him to plead guilty under CFA because the alternative for him was more and more prison time. He, you know, he's going home. So it works out for him. And he's not going to be subject to these precedents in Milwaukee. But there are going to be, you know, some. 16-year-old kid in Milwaukee who, you know, the, the government is going to use these precedents and say, if you're researching malware, we can go after you for CFAA. And, and that is really dangerous. Also, how do you, you know, how do you alienate the very people that can find this stuff and inevitably save the world? You know, I don't want to be hyperbolic, but... And that, I mean, and that's what the judge said. And I mean, the judge, even the thing that was unprecedented in the sentencing hearing is he basically said, you know, it's not my job to pardon you, but you should probably go get a pardon because you should be able to come back into this country and help us shut down, you know, cybersecurity threats like you did. And to do that, you're either going to need a waiver or you're going to need to be pardoned. So you should apply for a pardon. And, you know, hopefully that'll work. But Again, as you, as you said, you've just pissed off the InfoSec community and made the act of trying to understand how malware works criminal. So what next for Marcus? What's he going to do? So one of the things the judge made a point of saying was that he had no intention for ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, to get their hands on Hutchins. What happens sometimes if you're a foreigner in the United States and you have been convicted is there's a formal deportation process, and that can sometimes lead to detention by ICE. So the judge made an explicit point of saying, look, I have no intention that ICE gets their hands on this guy. I have no intention of him being another statistic. But if I were Marcus, I would leave sooner rather than later to prevent that from happening. And he's going to return to the UK, and he's going to work again still in security and in malware research. And he said he wants to do more teaching, do more teaching of young people so that they don't end up, you know, developing criminal past that comes back to haunt them like it did for him. What I find so interesting about this case is that it, it's obviously not a whistleblower situation, but it's a situation where the government wants to know something from you, wants information. You don't give it to them. They find a way to punish you for it. And this is something I find we're seeing more and more of when it comes to stuff to do with InfoSec, when it comes to do with things that are involving sensitive information. And it's just a real shame that this clearly very talented guy had to go through this entire ordeal to then 
<laughs> essentially be acquitted and, and now go home. Certainly within the hacking community, you know, there are famous cases, most famous Sabu, but there are plenty of them of somebody who got flipped. So yesterday, the whole cybersecurity industry and the hacker, the hacktivist movements was shaken by this news that Sabu, this high-level hacker and anonymous and the leader of the subgroup called LulzSec, had been a government informant for months. So the FBI has this habit of believing that's how they solve these cases. Obviously, that's how Hutchins got in trouble in the first place, because they had flipped some other dude and he gave up Marcus. And, you know, that's sort of the way the FBI thinks. And that may or may not be true. But the the really important point here is that Hutchins didn't have the information they wanted, or at least he still claims he didn't have the information they wanted. And there was no way out for him. There was no way for the system to reset and say, oh, well, we tried to coerce you and you're not going to give it to us. You know, they just kept doubling down and doubling down and doubling down. There's a there's a real strain of vengeance there, too, though. You know, it's something you, you wouldn't expect your government to do. Yeah, it was interesting because the day that he pled guilty, there was only one other journalist in the courtroom. But the entire back row of the courtroom was filled with FBI agents. And you could it was including the two that had had to take the stand. And, you know, they were those two agents were embarrassed. They both showed uh, in various ways that they had fucked up. Um, And because they were embarrassed and because the prosecutors were embarrassed, I felt like, you know, okay, we're going to we're going to do this superseding indictment and we're going to get you, you know. And it, you know, the the embarrassment of the FBI and the improprieties, I mean, there there, there were mild improprieties in the arrest process um, on on the part of both agents. You know, that that might have been an opportunity in a government that was working, that might have been an opportunity to say, oh, you know what, we kind of screwed up on this arrest and we don't think it's that important anyway, so why don't you just get on a plane? And instead, they just doubled down. But that's the way, that is the way that the FBI and, and DOJ tends to work. And they, they tend to, once you get in the system, you know, they tend to say, we're going to find a way to prosecute you one way or another. And it leads to, it can lead to really bad outcomes, you know? Well, I mean, I'm glad he's going home. I'm glad this is wrapped up. I hope he does get that pardon. But yeah, uh, yeah I mean, thanks for coming on the show to talk about this. It's a very important case. Yep, it is. Good luck to him. Yeah, no kidding. Today's episode was recorded and edited by Andrew Bursick. I hosted it, and I produced it. You'll hear from us next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.